Hi, it's Jamie, Progressive's Employee of the Month, two months in a row. Leave a message at the... Hi, Jamie. It's me, Jamie. I just had a new idea for our song about the Name Your Price tool. So when it's like, tell us what you want to pay, hey, 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 and the trombone goes, blah, 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 and you say, we'll help you find coverage options to fit your budget. Then we just all do finger snaps while a choir goes, statement's coming at ya, statement's coming at ya. Yes? No? Maybe? Anyway, see your practice tonight. I got new lyrics for the rap break. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Creating a Family. Talk about infertility and adoption. We're a weekly radio show podcast, and to be sure that you automatically hear about each episode, sign up to our RSS feed either at iTunes or on the radio page of our site, which you can find at creatingafamily.org slash radio show. And while you are at iTunes... I would be very grateful if you would give a rating to this show, and if you're feeling particularly industrious, you could also leave us a comment. It is amazingly helpful for other people to find the show. They, iTunes, uh, although we are on the staff favorite page, um, iTunes gives credence to those uh, uh, shows that uh, have more ratings. So we're already number one over there, but we would really appreciate it if you would uh, uh, give us a rating. Today's show will be on the health effects of fertility treatment on the children. I'm Dawn Davenport, the director of Creating a Family. We're a nonprofit providing education, resources, and support for infertility and adoption. You can find us online at creatingafamily.org. The Creating a Family radio show is underwritten by our corporate sponsor, Faring Pharmaceutical. If you're struggling with infertility, it's easy to feel overwhelmed. For comprehensive resources, including information on infertility, treatment options, and ways to save money on your medications, check out the all-new, and they're very proud of this all-new, faringfertility.com. We're in the process over here of of getting ready to roll a start on uh, redeveloping uh, and redoing, upgrading, whatever, our website. So I I understand from their standpoint how how proud they are that their uh, redo is finally up and running. I wish I could say the same for ours. But our current website is still great, so make sure you drop in over there. I blog three times a week at that website, and my subjects are usually relevant to infertility or adoption. And one that you might enjoy is a recent one titled, Fertility is as Amazing as it is Mysterious. And it, we, in it, I talk about some of what we know and how truly uh, amazing it is. And on the other hand, how much we don't know um, in so many areas uh, of fertility. and It's just amazing to me, and I think you would enjoy that blog. This show, as well as all the resources provided by Creating a Family, could not happen without the generous support of our sponsors, including our gold sponsors. We have Fairfax Cryobank. Fairfax has been a leader in sperm donation for over 20 years. We also have Unify. They provide personalized IVF prediction tests to give you and your doctor a more accurate prediction of the probability of success of having a baby with IVF. And they're currently offering a discount for Creating a Family audience. And the discount code is IVFBABY2013, all one word, IVFBABY2013. And we have Children's Connections with offices throughout Texas providing domestic infant adoption, embryo donation, home studies, and post-adoption support to families throughout the United States. Today's show will be on how infertility treatment affects the babies. Research is beginning to come in on how infertility treatment affects the health of children conceived. Uh, Our guests help us sort out this 
often confusing results of this research is Dr. Thomas Molinaro. Uh, Dr. Molinaro is a reproductive endocrinologist with Reproductive Medicine Associates of New Jersey, as well as a clinical assistant professor for the Departments of Obstetrics, Gynecology, and Reproductive Science at the Robert Wood Johnson's Medical School in New Jersey. And if this wasn't enough, he also holds a Master's of Science degree in Clinical Epidemiology from the University of Pennsylvania. And he conducts and publishes research in the area of this exact topic, the health effects of fertility treatment on children. In fact, uh, I discovered him at the, uh, he was presenting a paper at the ASRM conference, uh, American Society of Reproductive Medicine conference, and uh, uh, on the effect of uh, fertility treatment, whether or not it results in an increased risk of autism. Welcome, Dr. Molinaro, to Creating a Family. Thank you so much for having me. It's really a pleasure to join you. Well, the research is beginning to come in to help us untangle that chicken or egg question we have going on. Do infertility treatments raise the risk of birth defects, or is the risk linked to the parent's infertility itself? And and by the way, let me say at the outset that I'd like to make sure that we expand the discussion to not just birth defects, but to other health impacts too. Autism, as you studied, the neurodevelopmental issues, sensory processing issues, you know, at all, all of them. Uh, and, And we should note right up front so that we are not uh, perpetuating the, the any type of hysteria. Let's be totally honest that the vast majority of p- children conceived from fertility treatment are not born with birth defects or any other health or developmental issues. It's still important to talk about it, but we don't want to overstate the, the concern. Um, and, and Absolutely, quite, I think. Yeah, I bet you do. I mean, it's, it's a hard thing because it's... Yeah. Uh, we actually debated uh, a lot uh, here, here in, inside Creating a Family whether to do a show on this because qu- the reality is nobody just decides that they're going to, you know, what the heck, let's try infertility treatment. This is their last choice to having a family. So in some ways, is it not just rubbing salt on the womb to say, well, you know, in addition to the fact that you're infertility and, and the one cure for that or the one solution to that to, for you to have uh, biological children is is treatment, uh, but guess what? You know this treatment may have uh, 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 negative health consequences for the children you conceive. So, and yet our motto here is information is power, and we really do believe in the uh, we have faith in the patient community to make wise decisions. So it, it we concluded that in fact it was uh, imperative that we do a show that. It presents the, the information honestly, not glossing over and making it, and not underrating it, but also not pumping it up either one. And, and quite frankly, the, the reported research in the popular media is confusing. And I'm going to give you an example. That I'm taking two articles published in the same magazine, Time Magazine, you know, well-respected magazine, a couple of months apart. In May 2012, of last year, May of last year. They reported on a very large study out of Australia that noted that children born from infertility treatment were significantly more likely to have birth defects, but found that IVF itself was not associated with this with this risk. Once they factored in things like mother's age and smoking. They did find that there was a 57% increased risk for babies conceived through ICSI, intercytoplasmic sperm injection, for, for, the, for the novice out there. Um, and then they had an article in the same year, 20, uh, October 2012, that reported on a smaller but still significant study out of UCLA that found that babies born after IVF, again, they found that there was a 1.25 times more likely to be born with a birth defect. Um, especially they found that, uh, they concluded that uh, the birth defects of the heart, eyes, and reproductive system and urinary systems were more likely. 
but they did not uh, think they so that while the research was pretty clear that there was an increased risk of birth defects, they found that IVF. Uh, it, it was not clear. They, let's see what did they find. They found that IVF. Let's see. I'm getting confused here. I think they found that IVF was not. No, they found IVF was associated with the increased risk, whereas the other study found that IVF was not associated with the increased risk. So, although it's, it's very clear, confusing. It is very confusing, dadgummit. So it does appear clear that there is an increased risk of birth defects. But what we don't know is IVF at fault. Is it the parent's infertility that's at fault? Or is it ICSI? Or is it the fertility meds? Or is it the freezing? Or what? So needless to say, we're confused, and we are so thankful that you're here to help us sort all this out. But I want to start with what is often considered the first line of fertility treatment, uh, and that is Clomid or or Clomiphene citrate. and and I've read a study uh, a while back that found that it was associated with 300% increase risk of birth defects. Um, is that what the current research is still showing? And if so, how is that? Yeah, I think uh, that that's probably a, a little bit of an overestimate. You know, clomiphene or clomid has been around now uh, just about 50 years, and you know there are thousands, probably hundreds of thousands, maybe even millions of babies born at this point as a result of clomid therapy. And so it is um, actually one of the drugs that we feel the most comfortable with because it's been around a long time and because we have a lot of experience with it. And I think, as you said, it's really important to to remember that the majority of children born after clomid um, therapy are healthy and happy and that it's a relatively small subset um, that we're talking about. Um, I think the literature is quite confusing as well because there is no standardized way in which Clomid is given and also because the studies to follow up Clomid kids are are, are quite small and probably skewed. And and that's because Clomid is prescribed by a variety of different doctors, right? So not just reproductive endocrinologists, but general OBGYNs and family practitioners are writing prescriptions for Clomid. And, And so it's really difficult to capture who is getting Clomid and who isn't. Um, And so when you look at these studies that try to capture small groups of them, there's a a natural tendency to sort of overestimate the effect. You know, sort of of saying if you look for people who have children with birth defects and look backwards, you know, obviously they're going to be super sensitive to trying to remember what they could have done or what they could have taken um, versus um, other other people who conceived healthy kids, you know, they're less likely to even worry about about what happened in the past. And so I think that's a skewed way of of, of doing the research, going to where there are problems and looking back, where in fact what you would do to really get a good estimate, you'd have to look at the total population and see what percentage of people took uh, 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 clomiphene citrate, and then and, and then of those, but, but we don't have those. We don't have that database of which to we do don't. that research. We absolutely don't. And I mean, I think you know. Um, when you're studying something like IVF where uh, the CDC, the government, monitors every IVF cycle that's done in the country, it's much easier to look at those types of treatments because you have standardized um, monitoring of them. But when you're looking at something like Clomid, it's, there's so much variability. I think in general we know that it's a safe therapy, that um, children born after Clomid um, you know, uh, do quite well. Um, there is an association with birth defects in any infertility treatment. In fact, there's an association with infertility itself and birth defects. Mm-hmm. And I think that it's also quite important to to think about how we're defining birth defects. 
So there are some birth defects which are more cosmetic in nature, um, and there are others which are much more serious health issues. Um, you know, in particular, heart defects um, come to mind. Um, but there are other, you know, there are other um, sort of more cosmetic um, type situations or minor birth defects. And so it's really difficult. There is no consensus on how to categorize birth defects. Well, and, and so, I'm, I'm also interested in, and, and I find that very frustrating that the literature for the most part, the studies for the most part are not are not there. I'm far more interested, I mean, the birth defects are looking at one period of time, that child at birth, and does this child have any anomalies, any defects at that point? But, you know, what about down the line? Are we seeing children that have, you know, greater uh, attention issues? Are we seeing children that have got greater sensory processing issues? Are we having autism or, or somewhere on the autism spectrum? Or anything like that, which are potentially more life-altering from from a, both a parent's and a child's, of course, perspective. And, and it's frustrating to me that the research doesn't seem to be looking at that, and I suspect it's because it's it's much harder, probably more costly, too, Absolutely. but also much harder Absolutely. to go, you know, much of these things don't really become apparent until the child is 6 to 8 or 6 to 10 uh, when they're in school and, and, and expectations and learning issues become greater. Right, and in general, you're you're dealing with um, the way I always like to think of it is the exposure of a fertility treatment, right, and the outcome that you're looking at is they're separated by years and years and years, and they're separated by many other exposures, which could be potentially confounding the answer. Um, you know, for instance, or, or the biggest thing that we see is just pregnancy itself. So. Um, you know the the um, actual nine months of pregnancy and how the pregnancy progresses and any complications around the time of birth, et cetera, um, are huge confounders in this um, literature. And so it's very difficult to say that you know how a child behaves at age eight is mm -hmm. related solely to whether the mom took clomid or how she conceived when there's all these other things in between which mm -hmm. could be potentially playing a role. Yeah. And as you said, it, it, it's it's very difficult research to do and very costly because you, you can't do it with 20 kids. You can't do it with 100 kids. You're really going to need thousands, tens of thousands of, of kids to be followed. And in general, you know, the, the best way to do this type of study would be to follow them prospectively, meaning, you know, follow them from the time they're born all the way through and see how they develop. And it's very difficult to and expensive to do that type of study. Yeah, and um, that's the study that that would show, would give us the greatest information. And yet, right. Yeah, before we move away from Clomid, though, let's go back and make sure that we've touched on what type. We, we do know that there's an increased risk of birth defects. Would that be safe to say from what the research is showing? I think there's you know a slight increased risk of birth defects. In general, some of them seem to be um, genital urinary type birth defects. Um, you know, it's not surprising that some of the indications for uh, using Clomid are in, in people who have male factor infertility or ovulatory disorders, which, you know, might be linked to uh, those same systems. Um, there is a larger question mark about how musculoskeletal and cardiac defects might be implicated or not. I don't think that there's sufficient evidence to say that there's any one particular birth defect that's increased. Um and so that's that's a big, big issue here. The other issue is whether these kids are just being looked at slightly differently when they're born. So some of these birth defects are subtle, and they might not turn up until age two or, or three if you don't look for them. Mm -hmm. that's true. Um, and, and
and maybe these kids are because you know the doctor the pediatrician knows that mom had infertility or used infertility medications maybe they look a little bit harder in the delivery room or in the in the um, neonatal nursery um, because they know that there might be a, a higher risk of birth defects and so like you said the literature the evidence is is a little uh, spotty here um, you know it's it's enough for patients to be aware but they don't you know they don't there's nothing that you can really do um, to prevent it other than to sort of be aware of what their potential risks are. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a know. question from Lorraine, and she, it, it's along the lines of medication, so I want to ask it now before we kind of move on to procedures and talking about that versus medication. Lorraine says, I'm wondering if uh, the health impacts are related to the medication used rather than the procedure itself. I didn't have IVF, but I did have medicated IUIs. Um, so we've talked about Clomid, and, and she doesn't say what type of medicated IUI. I'm assuming now that if it's Clomid, we've already talked about it, but I'm also assuming that she's probably talking about some type of, of gonadotropins. Um, so is there, what's the research showing, uh, if it, have they been able to tease out if it is the ovulatory stimulatory, stimulation medications, the gonadotropins, um, or, or any of the other medications, actually, for that matter, even uh, the, the different medications that would be used throughout, that might be associated with the increased risk. Unless at this point, we, let's talk about birth defects only, just because we we've seen that there's some good research coming out that does indicate that there is an increased risk for birth defects. Right, right. This is this is a very, very difficult question to tease out, and you sort of hit on it earlier when you talked about is it the chicken or the egg? Is it the is it the infertility which causes this, or is it the drugs which predispose that? Um, you know, we do have a couple of uh, studies from Europe, from Scandinavia, which just look at the time to pregnancy. Um, that look at, you know, even couples who conceive on their own, but after that, what we would consider the twelve month mark, right? So if you you know, if you're not pregnant after a year, we usually think you have infertility. Mm-hmm. And so um, in couples with what what most people would classify as infertility or subfertility, even conceiving on their own, there tends to be a higher risk of birth defects. Um, when you start to throw in things like medication and uh, procedures, we do see that risk increase slightly. Um, you know, when you're talking about injectable gonadotropins, though, again, it's very difficult. The The way in which the drugs are used varies wildly um the uh you know there's no standardized databases where all of the you know the kids get uh, reported or followed and so uh the literature is is a bit murky the other thing that we start to get into when you're dealing with injectable gonadotropins is multiple pregnancy and mm-hmm. so you know at at least uh you know 15 to 20% of these pregnancies are going to be uh twins or triplets you know multiple gestations and so once you throw in this extra sort of component to it, it's very, it's even more difficult because we know that having twins increases your risk of having babies with birth defects and having issues in pregnancy and all of these other things as well. So um, it's relatively unknown. Um, it does seem like there's at least some component here which may be related to the medications, but unfortunately there's no easy answer Um and I think that's unfortunately what you're going to find over the course of our discussion is that the majority of this is is unknown and that there's thought to be a link on some level that's related to medications and procedures and on some level that's related to the patients themselves. And that's fair. I mean, we can and we'll we can keep bringing that point up, but it's and but we we do think that there probably is some connection 
to the procedures or the medication. But I'm really glad that you brought up the issue of multiples. In fact, we got a question from Catherine on that exact point. Um, one of the, as our audience uh, knows, one of our recurring themes here is that uh, multiple births are not the preferred outcome from fertility treatment. And uh, we sing that song all the time. Uh, and, and, and one of the reasons is that we do know that uh, there is an increased risk, a significant increased risk to premature birth from multiples, including twins. Uh, and I'm so glad you raised that point because when we're talking, I mean, it's certainly a confounding impact when you're trying to do the research because, you know, a baby born at, you know, 28 weeks or, or earlier or later even, but is going to be at increased risk for uh, things such as cerebral palsy and just a, a, a huge number of things. We also got a question um, from someone asking about uh, why is the uh, why is IVF with single embryo transfer a risk factor for preterm birth? Um, okay, I think her question is. I'm not going to read the whole thing. Her question is, even with a singleton pregnancy uh, conceived through IVF, is your risk increased for premature birth? Yes. <laughs> so the short answer is yes. There are now, I think, a number of studies. Uh, the first study was published in 2002, but it's been replicated multiple times now. Probably about a dozen studies or show it, or, or studies or so, which show that um, the uh, the outcome of IVF pregnancies, even when you look at just singleton pregnancies, um, shows an increased risk of uh, preterm delivery, of low birth weight, and of uh, birth defects as well as some of the third trimester complications like um, uh, preeclampsia and, um, and uh, heavy bleeding, uh, placental abruption. Um, part of the problem, though, is that um, all of these are also associated with advanced maternal age. And so that's mm -hmm. another component that we have to throw in here into the mix when we're trying to tease out the, the real truth is that being a little bit older increases your risk of the same things. And we know that the IVF population in general is a little bit older. Um, and so um, we have to account for that. Even when you account for that, um, even when you account for older age, uh, when you look at the younger uh, age groups, we still see a slight increase in that group as well. Um, and so it's, again, it's difficult to tease out whether this is related to IVF itself or whether it's related to the reasons why people need IVF. Is it because of their severe male factor infertility or is it because of an ovulatory disorder or because of an egg quality issue? And that's even harder to tease out. Um, and so we have, not, we have not actually had any sort of good evidence that looks at individual infertility diagnoses and these same outcomes, whether it's a better prognosis if you have tubal disease or whether it's, you know, you're worse off if your husband has a really low sperm count. We don't know that. You know, and, and one of the reasons that a lot of the – well, let me ask you this as a question – is one of the reasons that a lot of the um, more robust research, meaning, and in particular what I mean by robust, I mean that when they're looking at much larger populations, um, are coming from other countries, Australia and Europe and Scandinavian countries. Is that because that they have a database of children born from um, infertility treatment? Um, yes. I mean, I think it's because they're, you're, you're dealing with um, countries, in particular the Scandinavian countries, where medicine is socialized and everybody's in the same health system, per se, and so they all share the same databases. It makes doing this research a lot easier because mm -hmm. if uh, – 
if a patient has one ID number that they use wherever they go for health care, you can track them. Um, and that's really what they're doing is they're tracking these patients based on their ID numbers over the years to see where they show up in 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 terms of getting accessing medical care. Um, and we just don't have that in the United States. Um, we have a pretty good tracking system for IVF pregnancies, which is um, through um, the SART database, through uh, the Society mm -hmm. for Assisted Reproductive Technologies, and mm -hmm. that also goes through the, the CDC. And so um, we every link to IVF that, everybody on our site. We link to the database and try to give you some guides on how to interpret the data. But go ahead. And so in our own country, we do have now a number of studies, uh, some of the research that I participated in as well, looking at um, outcomes from the SART database. And you can you can start to see that our own data does mirror um, the data from other countries. Um, but it's just easier to track when you're all in one, basically on one computer system. <laughs> yeah. You know, it, it makes, I mean, it's, it's one of those practical things that non-research-oriented people don't think of. I mean, it, it's... It's like research for a lot of people is a black box that's out there, but but that black box is full of very practical considerations, which is you know exactly that. How do you find the population of which to study? Yeah, um, let's talk a little about IVF versus ICSI. That's been debated a lot. Um, ICSI again is intracytoplasmic sperm injection, which is used for usually pretty severe male factor infertility, although. There are some programs that are more or less routinely using ICSI with IVF, um, and some do not, uh, some clinics, I should say. Um, and then and compare that with uh, uh, IVF, in vitro fertilization. Right. So this is obviously a very important topic. So ICSI, um, historically, ICSI was developed for men with severe male factor infertility. So men with less than a few million sperm, even less than a million sperm, um, fertilization was um, reduced, if not impossible, even with in vitro fertilization. When you only had a handful of sperm, they couldn't swim into the egg. Um, and so the ability to actually inject the sperm into the egg has revolutionized that um, component of IVF. So men with severe male factor can have children now, whereas in the past, with just conventional insemination, that was not possible. Some some men were forced to move on to donor sperm. Mm -hmm. So the benefit of ICSI is tremendous in that population. Um, there's also uh, a, a potential benefit in some other indications, some other areas where fertilization may be compromised. Um, and that is a little bit debatable depending on who you talk to, where to draw the line in terms of who needs ICSI and who doesn't. But it is important to look at the early studies surrounding the safety of, of ICSI was done in men with very severe male factor infertility. We do know that some of those men actually have known genetic mutations now. Um, there probably are others that have genetic mutations that we haven't discovered yet, um, but they're clearly a, a very different group of patients um, because of that severe male factor infertility. And so um, the the studies do show that ICSI itself, um, even compared to IVF, is related, has a as, is, as it's related, has a higher incidence of um, some of the genitourinary um, birth defects, in particular something called hypospadias, where, which is a uh, deformity of the, um, the penis where the urethral opening uh, doesn't close fully. It's actually very easy to correct. It's a, it would be considered probably a minor birth defect, but it is nonetheless increased. Um, and there are uh, reports of an increase in sex chromosome 
aneuploidies. These are when you have too many or too few of the X and Y chromosomes. Uh, in particular, you think of two conditions, Turner syndrome and Klinefelter syndrome. These are um, genetic syndromes, chromosomal syndromes, where um, the children can be born relatively healthy, but they'll have issues with fertility. Um, and um, in Turner syndrome, there can be also some cardiac birth defects associated as well. Um, it gets a lot of it gets a lot of attention because the sex chromosome aneuploidy rate is doubled in men who in offspring who were conceived with ICSI, but the original incidence is very very low. So the incidence of of these sex chromosome aneuploidies is less than half a percent in the general population. So even when you double it, you're still actually at less than half a percent. Um, and so doubling a really small number still gives you a really small number, but if you want to say that the, the risk is doubled, it sounds a lot worse than it is. Um, so we do right. counsel patients extensively about the use of ICSI and how this increases their risk. We know that it's associated with it. In truth, we probably need to look a little bit closer at the way ICSI is used now um, because most of these studies are done, were done in the um, in the mid to late 90s when ICSI was first used and when it was used almost exclusively for severe male factor cases. Um, as it's being used a little bit more often now um, in couples suspected of having fertilization disorders for pre-implantation genetic diagnosis, it's actually um, an essential component of that um, process if you're screening embryos, if you're testing them. Um, you know, we probably need to go back and repeat some of those studies and follow those children a little bit differently. Right. Because, they're, they're, because the fathers would not necessarily, uh, of the current population of, of families going using ICSI to conceive, the fathers, the percentage of fathers that have severe factor male infertility, may or may likely it's considerably less than when the studies were done. Would that be correct? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. As a nonprofit, by the way, let me just get this in here. Uh, creating a family, as you know, is a nonprofit, and as a nonprofit, one of the ways we pay our bills is through our wonderful sponsors who believe in our mission of bringing you unbiased, accurate information, and supporting you on whatever your path is to achieving parenthood. And one of the ways you can help us is by supporting those who do support us. You heard at the beginning about some of our gold sponsors, but we also have other sponsors as well. So if you are looking for an infertility clinic or an, a sperm bank or an infertility, infertility therapist or an egg a donor agency or something along those lines, please make your first stop the Creating a Family database on the service provider page of our site. You can search by location, services provided, uh, whether or not the uh, doctors uh, are uh, board certified, are members of uh, ASRM and SART, as you've just heard Dr. Molinaro talk about. Um, anyway, a whole host of factors that we think are important when choosing. And by using these databases, you support those who support us, and we truly thank you. So we've talked about ICSI, but what about IVF itself, which is, you know, as we all know, the combining of egg and sperm outside, uh, creating of embryos, and then the embryos being transferred either um, through fresh or frozen back into the woman. So have there been, what's the current state of the research as to whether that procedure itself might be associated with increased risk of either birth defects or any other health impacts to the children? Right. So um, I think, again, it's really important to, to consider the, the same um, limitations to the studies in terms of, um, you know, trying to tease out, um, uh, you know, the answer um, when you're dealing with a very 
complicated question um, of whether it's the, the patients or whether it's the treatment or whether it's both. Um, we do know that IVF itself is associated with um, an increased risk of, of birth defects, not any one birth defect, but um, birth defects in general. Um, again, some of them more minor, some of them more serious. We do know that um, there's an increased risk of preterm delivery. We do know that there's an increased risk of low birth weight and um, third even, trimester even complications. Full term, even a full-term low birth rate. Even uh, even full term, but again, yeah. a full term low birth weight means a lot less than preterm yeah. low birth weight. Um, and and um, in general, most of the full term lower birth weight babies really have very minimal complications. Um, the the key here again is you have to tease out what is related to multiple pregnancy and what is related to singletons. Even when you get down to singletons, we do see that the singletons are uh, a little bit um, worse off than the. Um, spontaneously conceived um, or without, you know, in, within, without treatment um, children. But again, you have to take into account the age, why the couples ended up needing IVF, and those more finer subtle uh, points are, are much harder to tease out. You know, I think it's important for patients to understand that there is an, a slightly increased risk when you do these types of procedures. But there's also probably a risk even if you got pregnant on your own at that point. Um, as I said, from the Scandinavian studies, we know that some of the same outcomes are increased just with time to pregnancy. There's one very nice study which looks at couples who conceived at 6 months, at 12 months, at 18 months, and they saw an increase in birth defects and uh, preterm delivery the further out uh, it took you to get pregnant even on your own without treatment. So there's mm -hmm. clearly some some component of this which is related to the population. The key for us is doing more to try to understand what are the at what points in the process can we control it? Can we improve the outcome? So when we're dealing with these obstetrical outcomes, there's been a lot of um, newer research within the last few years looking at how we can better uh, maximize those outcomes. Very clearly, the, the, the easiest place to start is by reducing multiple pregnancy. Mm -hmm. So, you know, across the country, 30% of IVF pregnancies are, uh, are twin pregnancies. It's just unacceptable. You know, mm -hmm. honestly, um, you know, I agree. The, we've done a very good job over the course of the last 10 years reducing triplets and quadruplets. You'll see that there's very, very few in the SART database. There's almost no clinic that has a high triplet rate. Um, and that's because we know that the easy way to do that is to put back fewer than uh, three embryos, right? If you put back no more than two embryos in any patient, then, um, you know, your triplet rate should fall out um, dramatically. And that's, and well, that's the case. To be honest, sometimes I mean I think that selective reduction is also being used, but I, I wholeheartedly agree that the uh, that that, it's, that it, certainly the triplet rate is significantly reduced. I think that we're in a we're in a place now where the ability to freeze embryos to cryopreserve embryos has reached uh, a very high level, uh, and so you can very comfortably put back one or two embryos in patients, and the extra embryos will go in the freezer and do quite well and be used in the future. Um, and that doesn't have to um, – so you don't have the same pressure to use these embryos or lose them, which I think is, uh, unfortunately, one of the mentalities that we've had in the past. Um, so Actually, while we're talking about freezing, let's go ahead and get some of the questions. We've got a number of people who ask um, about the effect of freezing embryos and uh, it, specifically on children born uh, – has there been any research – on children born from frozen embryos versus children born from fresh embryos that have ne that never went through cryopreservation before transfer. 
That's a very good question, and that actually it, it dovetails very nicely with my second point here. Um, so uh, the children born after cryopreservation uh, seem to be no different from from fresh IVF. Um, you know, they are uh, they're just as healthy um, as as their um, fresh counterparts. What we are seeing in the last few years now is a tendency with the um, frozen embryo cycles to see a reduction in those pregnancy outcomes. Those early deliveries, low birth weights, third trimester complications seems to be lower in the fr in the frozen embryo group. And when you when you sort of look down at the science of this, it makes a lot of sense in a fresh IVF cycle, there is a, a large disturbance in the hormonal environment. Estrogen levels are higher, progesterone levels go up earlier. We know that this has an effect on the uterus, and maybe what we're seeing here is that implantation in a fresh cycle, while it's possible and while it happens all the time, might not be the optimal implantation. Because a lot of what I've said actually can be traced back to the placenta. So if the placenta is not implanting properly, you get these low birth weight you get a higher incidence of preterm delivery, of placental bleeding in the third trimester, of preeclampsia. A lot of this can actually be traced back to implantation. So by doing a frozen embryo cycle, what you end up doing is um, reducing the impact of those hormones. So in a frozen cycle, hormonal levels are much closer to normal. The, the mom isn't so stimulated. It's not, uh, it's not quite the hostile environment we think that a fresh environment might be. And so there's early reports now looking at even large databases. There's been, I think, three papers published in the last three months and just in 2013 alone, which showed an improvement in obstetrical outcomes with frozen embryo transfers. So this is a very, very hot topic for us. It is, it's, um, and it's fascinating, and it flies in the face of what people constantly think. And so whenever we report on these studies you're talking about, people will say, how can that be? And isn't there also that the issue of the, the fact that this, especially if the embryos are being frozen at five days at, at the blastocyst stage, mm -hmm. there is there any indication that they're they're stronger, they're better, they're more they're healthier, they're longer, they're they're the more robust embryos to begin with, so you're getting the best of the best, so to speak. That is a that is a, a very um, strong theory um, as to why these embryos might be doing better. Um, that's probably a component as well. Obviously, we don't know exactly why. We're in the preliminary sort of uh, research stages of identifying this as a as an area um, of you know of potential interest. I think part of the problem here is that retrospectively or in the past, we sort of know that pregnancy rates from frozen embryo transfers were lower. And it probably has to do with the fact that our technology to freeze was very different. It wasn't as good. We now use a technology called vitrification, which has very high survival rates. The embryos come out um, looking almost as good as they were fresh, virtually identical. Um, and uh, this has made a huge impact in, in success rates. The other thing is that what most people forget is that with frozen embryo cycles, for the vast majority of them historically, we have seen um, that the rates are lower, but remember, most people have already had a transfer. So for most people, a transfer happened in a fresh cycle. Either they got pregnant, had a baby, and they're coming back to have another, or they didn't get pregnant and they're coming back for another attempt. But what's most important is that their best embryo or their two or three best embryos were already transferred. So what you're dealing with historically are the, the second, third, fourth, fifth best embryos in a, co in a cohort of embryos. You wouldn't mm -hmm. expect those embryos to give you the same success. 
That's a great right? I mean, point. I think, yeah. I think yeah. that you would expect lower pregnancy rates from your third best um, embryo. I mean, it's, you would feel that way about your sports team, right? You wouldn't expect your second-string quarterback <laughs> to do as well as your starter. It's acceptable. I mean, and so I think yeah. that has been a, a potential confounder for how people look at frozen embryo transfers. But, but, but the results are just the opposite from that. I mean, and that's the weird part right. is that we're finding that, in fact, the the uh, and maybe I'm misunderstanding you, but but the results are coming in showing that in fact just the opposite of that that even though this is supposedly second string embryos out there that we're having more success with uh, with those uh, frozen embryos partly I suppose as you point out because of the, uh, the the stage of where the woman is and where the hormones and the effect of all the, the ovatory stimulatory drugs in, in her system and her uterine lining. And I'll tell you the other thing that I think is also important is that I think across the country we've gotten much more aggressive with um, freezing. So, you know, you're doing single embryo transfers. A lot of times now instead of putting your two best embryos in through the in the first month, you're putting the best one in the first month, the second best one in the second month, right? So that's mm-hmm. going to account right. for it. In our own practice, we have um, – a lot of patients who are, are overstimulated, we no longer feel compelled to transfer those patients. So if you're at risk for hyperstimulation, we do think that it's important to go ahead and just freeze the embryos. We're not scared that the embryos aren't going to survive freezing and thawing. So, um, you know, if a patient of ours is at risk for hyperstimulation because she's done a little too well with her medications, by all means, freeze the embryos, defer the transfer a month. And so in that case, actually, her pregnancy rates are virtually identical to fresh rates because she still has her best embryo. We didn't transfer it fresh. And I think you're seeing, um, you're going to see in the next few years a a large increase in the number of cycles which go to freezing primarily for a variety of reasons, for overstimulation, for um, uh, the concept of, you know, trying to maximize the the healthy aspect um, of a pregnancy. So I think, you know, you you could very uh, well see some some publications in the next few years where, um, you know, patients will be, uh, you know, committed to freezing all freezing all their embryos because of a high estrogen level, and we'll be able to see if the outcomes are different, which is really exciting because we're already starting to see some of that in the in the database work, but we'll be able to try to get down to identifying the mechanism, and that's you know, really that, important here. Yeah, I you know I. The thing, one of the things I enjoy most about the ASRM conference, I'm one of the few people who actually goes and looks at all the posters, and I'm just fascinated by the the research because it is it's, it's exciting because we really are beginning to find out, and we we know a lot, but I mean we're we're knowing even more. You are listening to Creating a Family. We're a nonprofit providing education and support for infertility and adoption. We have tons of resources that we offer without charge to the patient community, you, that is, because it's our mission. That's what we do. So one example of that that you might enjoy is a video that we have on low-tech ways to increase the odds of getting pregnant. Uh, You can find that on our uh, video page, which you can get to from our site. Hover over the word infertility on the blue horizontal menu. Click on the word video and it'll take you right there. This show is supported by our sponsors, including our goal sponsors. We have Cryos International. They are a New York sperm bank, which are part of the world's largest international network of sperm banks. We also have independent adoption centers whose mission is to provide open adoption placement and counseling to birth and adoptive families throughout the United States. And Nightlight Christian Adoptions were the pioneers of the first embryo donation program called Snowflakes. Uh, and uh, they've had over 260 babies born from that program. Now, could you tell us a little, uh, Dr. Molinaro, 
about, I should say that we're talking today, we have Dr. Thomas Molinaro on the show today to talk about the health impacts of uh, uh, on the children conceived through fertility treatment. Um, could you tell us a little about your research uh, on autism? Uh, is there a greater risk of autism of children conceived through fertility treatment? Right. That's a, a really important question. I think autism has been sort of a, a hot-button topic in the in the press for the last few years, and Boy, that's the, um, the the sort of ability to diagnose it and trying to um, be a little more aware of uh, of the the children who might uh, suffer from even mild forms of autism. And it's important to remember that autism is a spectrum, um, and you know that's actually in the name of it. It's called autistic spectrum disorder for the most part, and that there's some children who are severely affected, and and that's probably the more classic form that most people are mm-hmm. familiar with. And other people who are sort of, or other children who are lower on the spectrum who have other behavioral disorders which are not quite as um, easy to spot. And so um, uh, there are now a couple of studies, you know, one of uh, one of which I participated in, where we tried to determine uh, whether autism was increased in uh, children, school age children, really, because you have to wait until those kids get a little further out, mm-hmm. um, and that's quite challenging. Thus far, we don't see any increase. Uh, any significant increase in autism, nothing that at that points to to infertility or infertility treatment as a cause of autism. Um, but it is something I think that will require a much larger sample size. So in order to, I, I think I have, have seen a few estimates that you'd have to look at, you know, hundreds of thousands of kids really to get the answer that we're looking for. And that's because there is a huge amount of uh, potential interaction here. Again, maternal age is a big component of your risk for autism, as is paternal age. And yeah. so our infertility community being a little bit older, their their risk of, of uh, having a child with autism just based on their age alone is probably slightly increased. Um, we also know that um, preterm delivery um, and, and low birth weight, these obstetrical complications can be associated with autism as well. And so if uh, if the mechanism is through prematurity, it will be even harder to, to get at. Um, and, and so, you know, the, the last com- sort of component here is, is just the difficulty in making the diagnosis. You really need to have a qualified psychologist, somebody who knows what they're looking at. And it's very difficult to make that diagnosis in sort of a snapshot. You know, it's a diagnosis that tends to be made over a series of visits over a period of time during which the child is observed. And it's not just a, a simple blood test that you can do and say, oh, we have an autistic kid here. It's it's a much more subtle diagnosis that requires a lot of labor. It's a labor-intensive um, uh, sort of uh, uh, diagnosis to make. So, is there any evidence that would indicate, other than outside of prematurity, and I don't know how you would tease that out, but uh, that multiple birth children uh, that are part of twins or triplets are more likely to be diagnosed with some some of the spectrum uh, autism spectrum disorders, or is that just impossible because of the premature birth issue? Because we already know that that is affiliated. Yeah, it's it's very difficult. I mean, it does seem to be increased in multiple gestations. There's also actually a couple of studies which look at twins uh, that that being a twin is a, is an increased risk factor for having autism and that, you know, where you see more autism in twins. Um, but it's, again, it's the kind of thing that the the link isn't very clear. 
And it's because of the various ways in which autism is diagnosed. The way it's diagnosed in one clinic might be slightly different from somewhere else. I think there is a trend towards making the diagnosis a little more standardized in the um, on the psychology world, so that we're all talking about the same, um, you know, the same type of diagnosis. And it's very likely that autism, just the concept of autism, is probably an oversimplification. That mm-hmm. it's it's a series of disorders, and that. You know, we need to drill down and, and figure out exactly what's the, the makeup of each one of those. And obviously, um, it takes a lot of work. And, and that's certainly where the research is. Are the, it, it seems like, I mean, anytime you're reading uh, research now on autism, there's certainly a push towards, which is why I guess we're calling it a, a spectrum disorder, but the push towards noticing that it's really not just a one single thing we're looking at, but a, but it's, but, but a whole group of things, uh, of issues that, that uh, different uh, different factors that would cause it, and different, uh, di- really different uh, diseases. If I guess disease is not the right word, but whatever. <laughs> disorders. Yeah, disorders. Yeah, yeah, yeah. right. Yeah. Um, so uh, we do have. I mean, we do have some some pretty reassuring um, cohort studies that were done in Europe. Again, the Scandinavians were able to follow ICSI and IVF kids over the course of ten, fifteen years, and you know it doesn't seem like autism is increased in those in those children. Catherine and Sherry both have asked questions about uh, donor egg, uh, and, and I suppose we should also talk donor sperm at the same time uh, or right afterwards. Let's start with donor egg. Uh, again, harder to less uh, fewer. This has not been in the mainstream for as long as uh, traditional IVF, so uh, longer term studies are going to be harder to come by. But what is the research showing when uh, of the uh, health of children conceived with donor egg by comparison to children conceived um, uh, by eggs of their infertile mother? This is a very, very difficult question because you can imagine that the majority of donor egg recipients are older, right? Mm -hmm. And not just older, but you're talking about women in their 40s, um, some of them in their high 40s. And we know that age is a huge component for the obstetrical complications. So women over the age of 40 have much higher risk of uh, preeclampsia, of preterm delivery, of low birth weight. And so now we have to really wonder how can we possibly separate out the effect of age and the effect of this increase in prematurity and low birth weight and preeclampsia. How do we get at that? Um, And it there is no really good study that looks at it. There was actually a study published a few months ago in our main journal in the United States called Fertility and Sterility, which just looked at pregnancy outcomes in um, oocyte donation in a Danish uh, group. And they saw that the risk of all of these um, you know, perinatal complications that I just described was markedly increased, you know, twofold, one and a half to twofold in um, in the donor egg population. But the age was markedly increased. Um, and mm-hmm. so that was a huge, huge modifier where the, you know, the average age of a mom in this group was 37 and change. And so that means that while there's some younger patients in there, there's a lot of older, uh, you know, over the age of 40. Darn, I would have thought it would have been older. I would not yeah. have, I, I would have, I just said the average age would have been 42. Uh, but yeah, it shows you what I don't know. Huh? It only takes one 25 year old to pull the average down. <laughs> Good point. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Dad gum those young young poor infertile women uh screwing up our statistics uh interesting so 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 basically what you're saying is uh 
the study that the European study, the Scandinavian study, study was not able to determine. All it was able to show is that your increased risk for low birth rate, uh, low birth rate, and preeclampsia were greater. Right. But they weren't able exactly. to say whether or we not we don't have the right. We don't have the longer term. Yeah. yeah. We don't have the longer-term evidence yet. Um, I think that, you know, in terms of donor sperm, it seems like it's it's uh, there's no increase with donor sperm. Um, and that's, um, you know, that's probably um, a little bit – it's because, you know, guys are a little less complicated. And their contribution to this is not quite as the same as, uh, as that of, of the egg. Well, and oftentimes when donor sperm is being used, the woman herself is not infertile. So it's a – typical pregnancy and it's you know a uh IUI so i mean there's oftentimes not even medication being used or if it is it's not you know any of the the big guns exactly so i mean exactly. really you would logically you would expect that if donor sperm is the only if 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 male factor is the only issue and donor sperm is used you wouldn't expect really i at least that's am i looking at this too simplistically no, I think that's a that's a perfectly fine way to look at it. I do think yeah. that that's uh, probably the case. Do, the use of donor sperm is very different from the use of donor egg, clearly. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, so we've talked about birth defects in cells. We've talked about autism. Are there any uh, – and cerebral palsy, another birth defect. Um, are there any other health uh, issues that uh, – Parents should be on the lookout. We we received a question from Tracy, and oh well, actually no, I don't know. This is not Tracy, but anyway, that she was said she was expecting a baby this summer from ICSI frozen embryo transfer. Uh, she's wondering if there's anything she should be on the lookout for, or more importantly, that she should talk with her pediatrician about, both in the short term. Because that's a little easier to look for the more significant birth defects. That's that's easy. But down the line, are there things that she needs to be aware of and her pediatrician needs to be aware of, so that they can um, have be proactive in addressing? Yeah, this is this is a really important question. It's one you know the majority of what we have is uh, in terms of evidence here is relatively small studies over the course of uh, you know the last few decades. Um, in general, the majority of IVF kids grow up fine. They seem to do quite well. In fact, there's a few studies that show an increase in IQ in some of the IVF uh, kids, and that may be just related to um, socioeconomic differences. Um, you know, the more educated patients who uh, underwent IVF, uh, particularly when uh, it was more out-of-pocket expense, and you know, in in the 90s, before insurance covered any of it, in some in some places like it does now. Yeah, um, there are not a lot of places where insurance helps us. So <laughs> right, still, right. It's still <laughs> right. a you know, it, like it or not, it's a you know, it's it's a luxury for many people. It is. Yeah, it definitely is. And so there's definitely a socioeconomic component to to some of this. Um, it does seem like uh, the the kids are healthy. There are a couple of studies looking at. Um, body mass index and the propensity to um, for IVF kids to maybe be a little bit on the heavier side. Um, there's one particular cohort out of Europe which showed a slight increase. There have been other studies, other cohorts that showed no difference in them. Um, uh, you know, I think it's pretty reasonable to just sort of watch to see the growth curves and make sure that um, you know your your pediatrician is doing that. Obviously. Obesity in in our society today is at a all time high, regardless. Um, so how much of that is related to um, just being a little more observant about IVF kids? We don't know. And, you know, there are a few studies looking at 
um, or trying to tease out if there's any other metabolic issues in these kids. So far, we don't see any blood pressure noted to be the same. Um, a few hormones that have been looked at over time noted to be the same. Um, there was one study that suggested maybe that IVF kids were at a higher risk of having thyroid disease, meaning hypothyroidism. Um, but that's one study, small, um, has yet to be replicated. Um, but in general, the health of these children it, uh, seems to be pretty much uh, identical to their peers. Um, we do, uh, you know, we do know that there's no higher increase of in childhood cancers. That's been pretty well established at this point. Um, there doesn't even seem to be a higher risk in, in terms of allergies or other um, uh, typical concerns that that um, the kids have. Asthma um, or nothing like that. Nothing like that. Nothing so far. Um, interestingly enough. Uh, there has been a, a, a bit of work looking at the um, uh, sort of puberty and the transition to reproduction um, or to the reproductive years, and it seems to be actually pretty much normal, um, which is great. You feel pretty reassured that even though the couple, uh, you know, the parents had infertility, that their kids don't necessarily, there's no um, thought that they're destined to have infertility as well. Obviously, the um, the uh, exclusion to that is going to be some of the more severe male factor cases, which mm -hmm. we now know are genetically inherited. It's one of the few things that we can actually do genetic testing for in the cases of severe male factor. Um, but as a rule, the, the majority of them seem okay. The kids seem to be pretty well adjusted. Um, in terms of behavioral outcomes, um, there are now a number of cohorts which have looked at these kids over, over time, um, and there's no increase in ADHD. There's no increase in um, autism. They seem to score pretty similarly to their um, non-IVF counterparts in terms of uh, social functioning tests. I, I do think there was one study that looked at a possible increased risk of depression. But again, one study, not very big, not, re not repeated yet. Um, and so something, you know, to, to be on the lookout for in terms of research coming out down the pike. But, you know, I can't imagine um, that we're going to see that um, be a huge, huge issue. I think for the most part, you know, we've had a good 30 years of IVF children now, and in particular the last 20 where we've seen a, a large increase in these kids. And we haven't seen um, a huge signal jump out at us. You know, it's not like all of a sudden you you see a, a you know a tenfold increase in uh, adolescent depression. Um, so it's not something that's going to be a humongous increase. And that's got, and, and what a, we, on that note we will we will go out because that is such a hopeful note. Um, we have had a large number of children who have been born through the miracle of fertility treatment, and and although. We're not trying to underscore that there may not be some health impacts because we, we're in the process of determining whether or not, and there does seem that there might be some. However, the majority of the kids are doing just fine, and the majority of families are strong and doing well as well. Um, and you can continue to stay tuned. We are, as we have been in the past, we uh, do our best to report on the research uh, that is coming out and letting you know and trying to put it in context um, that is not inflaming or, or looking for the headlines, but putting it into context of real life and, and reality. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Thomas Molinaro, for being our guest today on Creating a Family. Um, if anyone wants, we're going to be having a discussion on the topic of this show. I will be blogging on this uh, topic tomorrow, and we will be having a discussion. You can participate in that discussion by going to the blog at creatingafamily.org slash blog. Now, to get more information 
on uh, Dr. Molinaro uh, or, or on Reproductive Medicine Associates of New Jersey, you can go to their website, which is rmanj.com, standing for Reproductive Medicine Associates of New Jersey. To stay in touch with the latest developments, including uh, research developments in infertility and adoption, as well as receiving the upcoming week's blog and show topic, please sign up for our newsletter at creatingafamily.org. It's on the left-hand side of each page. Or you can just send us an email and ask us to add you. You can send the email to info at creatingafamily.org. We have the largest infertility and adoption communities on the social networks, and we would love to have you join us. On Twitter, you can find us. We have three ways to connect. One is connecting with me, Dawn Davenport One. The second one is crea- uh, connecting to Creating a Family, which is all one word, Creating a Family. And uh, on Facebook, I think I said we had three. There's only two on Twitter. On Facebook, there are three. Uh, one, again, is connecting with me, Davenport one You can also like our Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash creatingafamily, all one word. Or you can join our very active Creating a Family Facebook support group, and you can find that. It's, Facebook doesn't make it easy to find groups, but you can find it just by typing in the words Creating a Family in the Facebook search box, and both the group and the page will uh, pop up. You can like the page and join the group. Next week's show, we will not be having one. As many of you know, I take groups to work at orphanages, and next week that's where uh, I will be, so there will not be a show uh, next week. There will, however, be a show the following week, and we would love to have you join us. Thanks for joining us today, and I will see you next week. Oh, not next week, the week after. (laughs) I'll see you in two weeks. Bye-bye. Hi, it's Jamie, Progressive number one, number two employee. Leave a message at the... Hey, Jamie, it's me, Jamie. This is your daily pep talk. I know it's been rough going ever since people found out about your acapella group, Mad Harmony, but you will bounce back. I mean, you're the guy always helping people find coverage options with the Name Your Price tool. It should be you giving me the pep talk. Now get out there, hit that high note, and take Mad Harmony all the way to nationals this year! Sorry, it's pitchy. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Let's say you just bought a house. Bad news is, you're one step closer to becoming your parents. You'll proudly mow the lawn. Ask if anybody noticed you mowed the lawn. Tell people to stay off the lawn. Compare it to your neighbor's lawn. And complain about having to mow the lawn again. Good news is, it's easy to bundle home and auto through Progressive and save on your car insurance. Which, of course, will go right into the lawn. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company, affiliates, and other insurers. Discount not available in all stages or situations.